Well, good morning. It's great to see you guys here today, and uh, we are continuing in the book of John. Before we do that, this morning was a pretty cool thing. This was an all-volunteer worship team, so no staff members on, and we just want to thank them. They did a great job this morning, didn't they? So thank you guys for leading us in worship. Also, so we're in the book of John. We're actually, um, we, we've been starting this journey, and last week we got through two verses. Yes, two verses. We're going to be a uh, somebody came up to me and says, I think we'll be, I'll be 80 by the time, I, and I think they were 30 or something like that. There's like, it's going to be a long journey, but I'm excited about what we've been able to look at and what we're examining. Um, this week, as we're looking into these next few verses, it reminded me of, of just kind of a, a question that used to rise up in my heart a lot as like a fifth, sixth, and seventh grader, and that was, does Bigfoot exist? Um, I was a bit of a nerd, and you're like, what? Anyway, just follow me. Um, I was a bit of a nerd as a, a bit of a, I still am a nerd, so the, the reality is that I love to ask these kind of questions. I, in fact, had a group of friends that we were like, oh, does Bigfoot exist? The Loch Ness Monster exist? Does all this stuff? And in the midst of all these questions, we would come to this, the inevitable question. When you looked up into the stars, and you looked at the vastness of space, you walked out of your science class as a junior higher, you had that one question, is there life on other planets? Anybody ever wonder that? When you were younger, if, uh, there's like a generational divide here, by the way. Like if you're in the older generations, you're going to be like, that is a dumb question. Of course, there's no life on, on other planets. But then the younger generation that watched the X-Files, we're all dying in the wool. Like, yeah, man, it's got to be out there. You know, we got we to gotta search for it and look for it. The reality of whether there is or isn't is, is what happens when you look into space. There's something that occurs in your psyche as you examine the size of the sun in comparison to, this, in comparison to our planet. Then you look at the size of the sun in comparison to something like Betelgeuse, which is this huge star out there in the, in the, uh, Orion, um, in the Orion constellation, and it dwarfs our sun like the sun dwarfs our planet. And you start to think about the size of the nebulas that we're staring at with all these stars in it and the size of a galaxy and the the vastness of the universe. And you begin to go, man, we are really, really small. Do you ever think that in junior high? Like, man, I'm so small. What's the big deal? There's nothing. We're, We're this tiny specks on this little planet, especially when you've flown in a plane. And you look down from a plane and you see the freeways, but you don't see the cars. Isn't that the weirdest thing? And you realize you're not seeing cars that have people that you can't see in them. Some of them up to four people or five or six people, if you're in my case, six people or up to eight sometimes, in one car going down a freeway. That's how small we are. Just from 30,000 feet, you can't see human beings. You can't see us moving around. You can't see us shaping the world. You get to a satellite and it's even more blurred. And you start to realize, man, we are really, really small. I think the problem with that thought is that it also begins to feel like, man, we're really, really insignificant, especially when you look at home or you look at your life and you realize, man, I got no, I've got no ability to control my government. My, my vote doesn't count, right? That's kind of the feeling we can have. Oh man, I, I'm at work and I may be a boss over a department or something, but I can't tell these guys what to do really and really get a lot of effective stuff done. And then you look in my house and it's like, I got these kids. I can't control them. That's not going to work. I got a wife. I can't control her. I have no control. I'm powerless. Anybody ever felt that way? Start to realize I'm small. I'm powerless. Man, I must be insignificant. And yet the reality is, yes, you are small compared to God, compared to his universe, and you are powerless compared to God, compared to this universe. And yet I'm going to say that John's going to argue with us. You are not insignificant. 
that you are not a, a thought outside of reality that's just like, oops, an accident has occurred. You, you're more significant. You're not just an accident. You are something intended to be here. In fact, we discover this in the book of John, chapter 1. We're going to look at 3 through 5. Yes, we will have gone through a total of five verses in two weeks, but that's okay. We'll take this look, and I think you'll see why we're going slow through this. We started with a conversation that makes it even worse. We began last week with a conversation of the Trinity, the God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has eternal relationship, always been a relationship, and He is satisfied in Himself. God didn't need to make us because He was bored. He didn't need to make humanity because He was lonely. God was completely satisfied and enjoying being God as God. Father loving the Son, Son loving the Spirit, Spirit loving the Father, all of that working together. And so we go, man, are we insignificant? No. In fact, he goes into it. Let's start. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, speaking of that Word, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. There, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And this is the beginning point that we need to start with. He, he, he breaks out of this conversation about who God is, and then he immediately turns. He says, there's this one who is the Word, and the Word, who we see later, is Jesus, who the Word becomes flesh, becomes Jesus. It is God in the flesh, walking amongst us, living amongst us. He is the one who has done something. Look at verse 3 again. He made all things. All things were made through him, and without him was not a thing made that was made. And it starts us off that everything was made by Jesus. It's as if he took his little made by Jesus stamp and stamped every single thing that has ever existed. In fact, if you look at the text, um, there's a little bit of a debate how this text works, whether it should be um, adding on to chapter 4 or staying in chapter, or sorry, adding on to verse 4 or staying in verse 3. But what, he, what it says here is this, all things that came into being, came into being through Jesus. Without him, not a thing that's come into being has come into being. I mean, he's literally locking everything, spiritual, the heavens, anything physical, it's all come through Jesus through the word. This is important because we can get ourselves distracted here for a minute and think that like some, some other religions do, that Jesus is a created being. In Mormonism, Jesus is preexistent. He, he exists prior to the creation of the world, but he's limited because at some point earlier, he was born to spirit parents and became a spirit child, grew up, and then was sent to, sent to earth to bring out the plan of redemption. That, that's the Mormon conversation about Jesus. There was a time before he existed. But that's not what this is saying. What this is saying is that if anything came into being, if anything had a beginning, it came through Jesus. The only thing that doesn't have a beginning is God. And so again, it's saying that Jesus is the God, the creator, that this one who is the word, who becomes Jesus, is God the creator. And everything that there is that you can think of, nebulas and stars and stardust and atomic structures and spinning quarks, and the beauty of the atomic structure and the electron and then elements and all of this came through Jesus. Said he was a carpenter. Man, that's a heck of a carpenter. And you stop and think about that because what you have is this beauty that he has made everything, big and small, you name it. 
Now, my wife and I have been watching a show. It's called Fixer Upper. Any Fixer Upper fans in here? HGTV all the way for some of you, right? So the, uh, the Fixer Upper is a cool show because you watch these, this couple. They're married and they're Christians. And they, they show up at these, these run-down, messed-up homes. And then they work this magic with a giant construction crew and a whole bunch of stuff. And, and suddenly you watch these dumps turn into these beautiful homes with this beautiful furniture and these looks and it's structurally sound. And you're just like, that's amazing. And you step back and you're like, the house is cool. But after, after house, after house, after house, you start to go, man, the gains are amazing people to be able to do that. They start to receive something that we would call biblically glory. Notice the similarity here in the book of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. That's exactly what happens when you're watching this show. You begin to be amazed at the builders and less at the house, more at their capacity and capability than at what they actually made. And yet stop and think for a minute. When you look inside the human cell, when you look inside any cell of any living thing, you find a genetic strand that has information wound tighter than anything we can put information into. You have the capacity to pack life, to, to produce itself in a cell. You turn around, you look at the universe, and the vastness and the greatness, and we know that there are these, these very powerful forces that you adjust them in a, in a minute way and the whole universe falls apart. And the reality of the grandness and the minusculeness of how he creates makes you realize how smart is Jesus anyway? How skilled is the word? How amazingly deep does this God go? I mean, stop and look around for a minute. This is what mankind can do with what God already made, knowing that we could do this. We are just a reflection of his creativity, a reflection of his ability. And how vast is it with what humanity's already been able to do? And yet it's a drop in the bucket compared to the intensity and the amazingness of the stars and the galaxies, of a, of a platypus, of the strange fish at the bottom of the Marianas Trench, to the wonder of the heights of Everest. Who sees every vista on Mars, every vista and every gas movement in the midst of Jupiter. This is the God who made all of this stuff. That should intensify the reality when we say that everything was made by Jesus. It makes us go, who is this one who is the word? Let alone it should kind of make us shiver when we realize that I owe my existence to Jesus. And I put this up there because I want us to say it. If you're a Christian, I want you to say this out loud so you hear your own voice speaking it. So say it with me. Say, I owe my existence to Jesus. Say it out. Ready? One, two, three. I owe my existence to Jesus. Does that weird you out? I owe my existence, not just my body. Not just my brain, my soul, my existence, the very I that I declare I am. I owe my existence, the fact that I'm an I at all, to Jesus. Oh no, my parents. No, my parents owe their existence to Jesus and their parents and their parents and everything else. It owes its existence to Jesus. My spiritual being is only here because Jesus wanted it here. He didn't need it here, but he wanted it here. 
He shaped and formed the entire universe precisely and exactly so that this planet could be here because he wanted to create us. You and I being here, that's far from insignificant. That means you're here for a purpose at the right time now. Why now? Why do you exist today? And yet he gave you this existence and he gives you this purpose. And what do we say? What's the big trend right now in America in all the pop music and everything else? It's my life. I'm going to do what I want. How many times have we heard that over the years, right? Different forms, different iterations. My life, I get to do what I want. It's my body. I get to do what I want with it. Hey, get out of my way. It's my life. Now, and this is, the, this is the quintessential argument that we all give ourselves. I get to do what I want, right? Because I am who I, I'm, I was made. I, I belong to me. My kids get that that doesn't work. Let me give you an example. Uh, I have three young boys and three million Legos. And that's just kind of an interesting combination. Literally, they are all over our house. There are buckets in our playroom. There are bags and baskets. Because once I said, my son loves Legos, and people just started dropping their Legos off at our house. It was like incredible multiplication. And so my sons will sit down invariably, at least once a week, I hear this argument. And one of them will design something. Andrew's just started learning how, but Nate's like the super builder, creates all these cool things. And Nate likes to just set them there. Well, little brother likes to come in and go, cool, and he wants to touch. And eventually he touches, and the first thing we hear is, mom! Andrew broke my creation. Oh man, we go up there and we're trying to say, don't touch what he makes, it's his. And my kids get it. It's like, I put all my time and effort. I crafted this thing. I put my creativity into it. It's mine. God put all this effort and crafted all this stuff into making you. And you know what he says about the universe? Do you know what he says about your soul? Do you know what he says about your body, your toenails, your fingernails, your teeth, your eyebrows? What he says about the chair under your feet, or the chair under your seat, the, the, the carpet on the ground, all of it, he says, mine. I made it. And we run up and we grab it and we go, mine! And he's like, I'm letting you borrow it. But the last time I checked, when we let somebody borrow something really, really significant to us, really, really valuable, you don't want them just taking it away and treating it and going, hey, this is my car. Like, look, I put Crisco syrup inside the oil. You know, it's like, no. You want them to treat it well when it's been given to be used and it's not yours. Yo, what do we do? We run around yelling, mine, I can do whatever I want with it. My kids get, they don't want somebody messing up their creations. Man, how fast we've gone loose on weird rails in a culture of all about me, right? And here's, here's the thing, that's not a new story. That's the oldest story in the Bible. Adam and Eve are given this life. They're given paradise. They're given everything. And the serpent says, he didn't give you everything. Why don't you live life the way you want to? Oh, that's our life. You're right. We can make, oh, Yeah. And humanity has continually over and over and over since that time said it's all about me and we've made consistent mess after mess after mess after mess after mess. And right here it says, all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made, including me and you. Without him, we don't exist. Without him, we're not here. How much respect should we give to the one who's made us when he says, you're mine. 
I don't think that's a bad thing. I think a lot of people go like, oh my gosh, I'm owned by somebody else. That sounds so horrible. No, no, not when, not when this God crafted you. Not when you're a fine piece of art and work that he's intended for this world. No, no, see, he's got greater intentions for you. You're not some device sitting somewhere. You're not some insignificant thing. You are extremely valuable. In fact, that's what we get into the next verse because we see that Jesus is life and the way of life. He, he puts all this life into this. Starts off verse four. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. In him was life. Hear this. In this one who is the word, in Jesus is this life. What are we talking about here? Well, obviously, life is us moving, breathing, the ability to reproduce, to have all these abilities. That's living. That's life. And yet what's going on in this text is something deeper. The word life in here is actually the word zoe or zoe. And the word zoe actually is only associated with one other term throughout the book of John, and that is the word eternal. It's speaking of eternal life. You go, well, it's not associated with eternality, eternal life here. It says, yes, it is. Notice it says, in the beginning, that's before time, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And this one who is the word is life. We're not talking about just any old life. We're talking about eternal life. And you say, okay, That means lives forever, right? Yeah, it does in some ways. According to the Bible later, Jesus will actually say this. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And it's the belief, as Christians state, that we will live like Christ will live forever because of his resurrection. Talked about that at Easter. And the reality is this is the promise and the hope. We will live forever. And sure, that's eternal life. But guys, that's not what John means. John's not talking about a duration of life. He's talking about a kind, a category of life. See, whose life are we talking about here? In him was life. We're talking about God's life. In him was the kind of life that God lives. Well, what kind of life does God live? Oh, I know. It's really boring because he doesn't, he's just God. He's holy and perfect, so he never has any fun. You know, you can't, can't, can't enjoy it. No, no, actually, that's the opposite. In the Psalms, they start to kind of paint the path of life. You make known to me the path of life, the way of life. God, your life, you're the first to have experienced life. You're the one who, who made our kind of life. You know what real life is. Show me what it's like. Here's the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of what? Joy. I mean, I get Joy. Man, I get joy when I got this little baby in front of me who's brand new, and you're about four or five weeks in, and you get those little feet, and you're pressing on them because you got that little thing you can do with their feet, and their toes spread, and, and, and then suddenly they giggle because you tickled them, and they smile, and you're like, they're smiling. That's joy. I don't know, if you don't get joy from that, I don't know what's wrong with you. You need to go see a psychologist and get your, get your meds checked. You know, now the reality is that that brings joy. When you've made the shot or you've hit the home run that wins the game, there is elation, there's joy, there's nothing like that feeling. There is some amazing joy that comes rushing through your, through your life when your bride is coming down the aisle or your groom is standing waiting for you. There is joy that lasts for a while, but not fullness of joy. <laughs> Depends on how good your marriage is, so... But even the best marriages, that joy will fade, right? You've got here the, the joy that never stops. It's full. The cup is topped. You can't put any more in. Full joy 
is in the presence of God. He's not bored. He's not unhappy. He's not having a bad, bad day. That's not his problem right now. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Read that again. Pleasures. Anybody want pleasure? We love pleasures. That's our thing as a society. We like to have pleasures and enjoy pleasures. They will end. The money will run out. The drugs will kick you back. The alcohol will defeat you. The pornography will get you in massive trouble and problems. The movies will bore you. The music will start sounding the same. That's why I keep pushing and pushing and pushing because pleasures on earth aren't forevermore. But with God, they are. They're at his right hand. He's dispensing them forever. They're never stopping. Because in heaven, when before anything was made, all he had was joy and pleasure and enjoyment and rejoicing as God. He wasn't bored. He was loving it. That's the life. And guess what? He intended when he made us to enjoy that as well. To have that kind of life. In fact, it's even greater because it says, hey, what's the one thing that can mess up joy? What's the one thing that can mess up pleasure? Is that if I don't get what I'm aiming at, my intentions are stopped. Job speaking to God says, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God's never had an idea or a purpose stopped. He's never had it interrupted. He's never been stopped and defeated in his intentions. He has succeeded in everything he's intended to do. God cannot be stopped. There's nothing impossible for him. With man, this is impossible, Jesus says, but with all, God, all things are possible. Speaking of saving the rich man, but his point is clear that with God, all things that are possible on this earth are possible with God. He can't be stopped. He's living a life so purpose-filled, he will, he will set out on his journey and never miss the mark. Now that's life. That's living. That's unlike us, right? We sit down, we think lost is going to be worth it, and then we regret ever watching the series. Now we get in there, we're, we're, we're investing our time. We figured out how to design guitars or do this thing and make this art. And while it's valuable at the time, eventually we're kind of like, oh, I've done that enough. What's next? That's not how God lives life. God enjoys everything. He keeps going. It keeps moving. It's never stopped. It's never thwarted. And he says, that's the life that you were supposed to have. And that's the life we all long for, let's be honest. I was in, I was in Thailand uh, just a few weeks ago. And fascinating to talk to the people who were once Buddhists, who had become Christians. And they're like, oh, the whole thing is you show up to these giant golden statues or painted golden or whatever, and, and you would, you'd walk in with your money, you'd do your bows, you'd read whatever you're reading, and you didn't understand what you're reading because it was written in another language, though you could make the sounds. You'd pray your prayer, you'd get up, you'd pay the monk to give you a plate of something that you'd set in front of the Buddha, who then they would take it and resell it later. But the point was simply that so you could have a little bit of luck. In hopes that in the future, your life and your karma might be washed away so you can have a little bit better life in the next life and a little bit better one in the next one, eventually hoping to reach enlightenment, eventually hoping to find out how to really live life like Buddha lived life so that you can enter into the glory and the wonder of nothingness. Where I have no pleasure, I have no I, that's their hope. And they're all abandoning it 
for American goods and malls. Let's flip over to the other part of the world. You just go a little bit further to the, to the west and suddenly now you're standing around in another country filled with so much turmoil because they're at a crisis. Islam is wondering, who are we? Because now what they're looking at are their young men and their young women for the sake of eternal life, blowing themselves up and others around them. Because they want life. Oh, they want to have joy and they want to have pleasure and they want to have purpose. And we as Americans, we're no better. We, run, we throw out our, our God and we throw out all this stuff to adopt an open-ended secularism where we can say, I am mine and I can do whatever I want. And we run and we run and we grab a bottle and we pop a pill and we turn around and we, we abuse people and we end up hurting each other because you're in the way of my pleasure and my life. So let's create tolerance so we can just tolerate each other and remove each other so you can have your life and I can have mine and you don't tell me how to live mine and I won't tell you how to live yours. And it's destroying the fabric of society as we seek to have life. That's what we're wanting. And what's odd here is we can be trapped in this darkness, this confusion, and yet it doesn't stop with this. Read it again. In him was life. And the life was the light of mankind, of men. God hasn't closed us in and said, figure it out, sorry. Work your tail off and you can come to me. No, no, he opened the door and he said, I'm going to shine light and I'm going to give you light. The life that I live is the light of men. It is the way to live. It is the way of life. You want to know how it have purpose? Know that God made you on purpose with a purpose. That he made you to live a life like him that is light. That shows off the builder, the old way of saying this was this, what's the purpose of life? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Guys, that is the purpose that we've been given, to, enjoy, to glorify God, to show off his light, to show off his light, to live as he's given you to live. See, he's a perfect relationship. When you have that, in, that relationship, it starts to heal your relationships. He has the greatest form of life. And when you live with him, he produces that life in you. If you're a Christian, you've received Jesus Christ, that life through the Holy Spirit is already living in you. The question is, are you walking in it? Or are you seeking other methods for life? Other light? Because what he's given you and this is how John is trying to lay it out, is the picture of life. Jesus, who is the word, who is life. Look at him. See how God interacts with sinful men. See how God deals with judgment. See how God deals with calloused Pharisees and authorities and leaders. See how he deals with broken people, blind and horrified that they've been caught in sin, how he's merciful, how he's just, how he engages with questions. The power of reading about Jesus is seeing how God would walk around on this earth and interact with us as a model so that you and I could walk in the same way. But he doesn't leave us there. He empowers us with his presence so that we can do that very thing. I'm kind of breaking into the whole book of John from this verse, but the reality is that's what's going on here. He is saying, you have a model for living. You have a way to live. You have the right pleasure, purposeful living given to you in Christ. But Christian, are you living in that? 
If you're not a Christian, where are you trying to find that life from? I want to challenge you that it is found in Jesus. And everything else is going to just simply disappoint you. But he, but, but he doesn't need us. Yes, but he wanted you to be here. He made you on purpose. He gave you this opportunity for eternal life. And so he is the way of life that is broken and it can't be overcome. Look at it, verse 5. This, this is where I want to challenge you last. It says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There's something interesting there. This life, which is the light of men, the way of life that we should live, the life that we can look at, is in competition against something called darkness. Now, where in the world did darkness come from? Darkness, according to the book of John, is really human evil. It's what we've produced. And, and the bottom line is that the, the John's pretty clear. We like evil a lot more than we like good. We love darkness a lot more than we love light. In fact, he says after John 3.16, the whole call to the gospel, he says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. You say, Greg, really? I don't think we like the evil. I don't think we like the darkness. Let, 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 me, give you, let me give you some ideas of why I think we like darkness better. A friend of mine was at a talking about his high school years, and he was saying, hey, I, yeah, I went to this party, and it was pretty raucous, and it was interesting, and I sat down for a little bit, and I was talking to this girl, and my buddy was with me, and after I finished talking, I got up and walked over to my friend, we were talking, and I said, so is this girl cute, or is it just dark in here? <laughs> Regardless of how the answer went after that, it's illuminating the question, because we all know, when it comes to our, our blemishes and our looks, we like it darker in the room than we like it brighter. You get really bright lights, so ladies, you can get your makeup perfect, but then you're hoping for dim light at the candlelight, guys, because you're like, yeah, I look a little bit more muscular in the dark. The fat looks like muscles. You know, I get how this works. We like the dark. The wrinkles aren't exposed. Your skin looks smooth. Things look good. You look younger. The dark is good because the dark hides blemishes, and that's the point. The reason darkness has become associated with evil is because what's done in the dark isn't seen. And it's equivalent to the way the human heart works. Guys, we have thought some of the worst things in the world that you don't want shown off. You've done some horrible things when you're all by yourself. You don't want other people seeing. And what we do is we push them into the dark. We put them in our closets. All of these symbols are symbols of hiding and closing and making people look another direction. And what Jesus says is he brings in the million watt lumen and shines it on you so that every blemish, wrinkle, crease, zit, and everything is shining for the world to see. And we go, turn that off. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, when God shone the light on humanity, when that true life came in, we acted like the kids in the room, right? You got that good kid who's doing good for the school teacher, and we go, teacher's pet. We tear down good. We don't lift it up. When a great thing happens, we try to figure out why they're broken and what they're trying to get out of it. 
You lift up a hero in America, we'll figure out how to tear him down within four or five months because we can't have good people. Humanity doesn't really like the good. We like celebrity. We like actors. We like to pretend. But the trick in this situation is that Jesus has shown the light and it's narrating something. Somehow the darkness is broken and against the light and it's fighting the light. It persecuted the light. It tried to break down, overcome, and destroy the light, but it couldn't. The light overcame the darkness, it says. And guys, I want you to hear me. That light is the life that you and I have in Christ. That life can't be destroyed. You can lock it up. You can shove it away. You can make laws against it. You can laugh at it on Instagram. You can throw down your comments on Facebook, but you can't stop the true living that Jesus has lived when it's living through you. It doesn't end because you are self-sacrificial, loving other people regardless of what they do to you. That's the picture of life. That's the light that shines. That's the purpose of life. To live a life for God that glorifies Him as Jesus did it. And what suddenly breaks forth, guys, is a life and a purpose that you and I can live. You're like, what's my purpose for living? There's no specific detailed purpose for you right now that I can tell you from a pulpit. What I can tell you is this, that God's given you a general purpose to shine His light and glorify Him. Because he said, Jesus told us this in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Guys, do we see this? With that verse up, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. The darkness crucified it, but it rose from the dead. The darkness fought and killed those who were the light of the world, and yet it spread like wildfire across the world. It tried to twist it and hide it and destroy it, but ultimately the light continued to shine, and it shines brighter and brighter as the darkness gets darker and darker. My friends, have courage that God is living in you and can make you strong in a time of danger, in a time of darkness. Do not bend or kowtow to a culture that is bending to the darkness. Live in the light and shine that your brothers, your sisters, your family, your friends can see the life of Christ in in you. Don't go looking for it from somewhere else. Don't buy the idea that you have your life, you live it like you want. No, God has made you. He's put you in this time, in this darkness, to shine His light through you. So church, hear me, shine. It's time to shine brighter than ever. And honestly, to look at the consequences and say, let them come. But that takes courage. And you have to be sure that the light has shined into the darkness and the light has overcome the darkness. The light has overcome it, guys. So I want to challenge you to think about something. Some of you in this room today, you're not letting the light shine. You think somehow you can hide it. But he is shining through you and you can't hide the city on a hill. It's going to shine forth. Others of you, you are here today and you, you, you've given in to the, it's my life. You've even said those words. And as a Christian, maybe it's time to turn back. 
and realize it's not your life. You've been given to a precious gift that you are to, you are to use carefully. And maybe others of you have just been simply trying to find the life in a lot of other places other than seeing that God has given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness in his word. And so I want to challenge you guys that maybe as, as we sing, one of these three categories is something you need to turn from. We're going to ask God to just convict us, open our hearts up. If you're living that, in the right way in that way, I'm praying he encourages you and that you continue to shine and grow. But let's, let's pray together. Father, we come before you. We do ask that you would indeed open our hearts up, that we would be a people who are living for you, knowing that you've made us for a purpose. You've given us an incredible purpose. We're not small specks on a planet that have no purpose, but we get to shine for you. We get to live a life that you've already lived. And God, that life won't end and it won't be stopped. Wherever we need to be convicted, God, whether we're trying to get life from another place or whether it's just simply that we're trying to gather uh, a life that's run by us, would you just convict our hearts and change us? God, otherwise, if we're walking with you, would you just encourage us that we could continue to do so in a dark world that's very difficult? Pray that you would lead us in this time and convict us. In Jesus' name, amen.